Clyde. All right. It's such an epic trailer. I'm like, let's go every time I hear it. But so as we jump in, we're in this series called Collide, and we're talking about how Christianity and the culture collide, how they don't always agree on everything. And really, Jesus has always been controversial. That's why they crucified him, because he didn't quite fit in with the culture in which he stepped into. And so there has always been a collision. And now I think in our culture today, less people make a decision about Christianity based on kind of the facts and they have intellectual doubts that keep them from Christianity. I think it's usually more of this issue of control and authority. Who's in charge? I want to call the shots or I want to let God call the shots. I I want to dictate truth or I will submit to his truth. And I think often people want instant gratification and they want to be able to make their own decisions. So, so far we've talked about truth and tolerance, which I think are the two of the most core topics for us to discuss to start the series because where truth comes from and how do we deal with all the different thoughts of our day are, are key as a foundation to dive into collide. And so today we're going to jump into the next topic because as a, as a culture, for the most part, we kind of say, well, you do you and I'll do me and we'll be good. Well, this kind of works maybe a little bit until you get to this topic of marriage, which is what we're going to talk about today. You do you, I do me doesn't work very well because you're trying to become one and you're trying to work together and figure this whole thing out. And so it's like, I don't really know what we are going to agree on and believe together. Well, this is such an important conversation today because marriage is the most basic building block of all society. It's what communities, cultures, nations are built off of. So first of all, what's the best way to find someone to marry? How do we find the one? Well, our culture has found a really good way. I think this is kind of our top way at this point. This is what we're pointing at. And so our, our best way is The Bachelor, right? And so you get, to, so the, this guy gets like 20 girls that are all fighting for his heart. And so they are doing whatever it takes to win his love. And, you know, at the end, he comes to this sweet moment of the rose ceremony and he takes a knee. And so like, it's, we set it up as like, well, that's a good option. He gets to see who he's compatible with and have his choice of all these beautiful women. And so this must work, Right? Well, there's been 20 seasons. Guess how many are still together? Now, first of all, I've got to count out season 20 because it just, just ended. So it doesn't really count. They are still together at this point. But, um, but so of the 19 seasons, guess how many are still together at this point? I'm seeing some different numbers out there. One. One of 19 are still together. The average was around three months that they lasted, okay? And this was the setup, it's the one, we're compatible, it's perfect. Okay, maybe not. Maybe it's not the best answer. But here are the questions of our culture when it comes to marriage. With over half of marriages ending in divorce, is it even worth it anymore? Why should someone get married instead of just living together? I mean, is there any difference, really? Is marriage truly between one man and one woman, or should we be open to other options today? I mean, it's 2016. Haven't we progressed? And every time we let our feelings lead the discussion, 
we will change and morph according to our culture so that we don't offend other people. And if God is absent from the conversation of marriage, I would say, what's the point? He's the one that established it. And all we're doing in our culture is signing a non-binding contract. So where did marriage come from? Did it start as just a contract or is it something more? We're going to look today back at Genesis and find two core purposes for marriage. And then we're going to look forward and find out even more. And the reason we're going to look back is because this is a core point of today is the creator, not the creation, determines purpose. God, when he fashioned everything, said, this is what I'm making this for. I have a purpose and an intention behind creation. We don't get to come in later in 2016 in our culture and say, nah, I don't really think so, God. We're going to do it our way. And yet, that's much of what our culture wants to do. And so we're going to dive into his original design. And then we'll find another core purpose as we look forward through the rest of scripture. But we're going to look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28 first. It starts with, says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the first commandment in creation is what? Make babies. Okay. So it's like have kids, build families. And so the first intention of marriage is a foundation for family. God was all about families from the beginning. And he wanted to set that up from the beginning. And so what is the best structure for a child to grow up in? What, what's the best possible scenario for a child to grow up in? Actually, there is little to no debate on this topic. Almost everyone would agree that the best scenario for any child is to grow up with two loving biological parents. That's the best situation that a child can have to transport them from birth to adulthood. Now, we are all for adoption and we're all for a lot of great things that are around here, but, but those are usually responses to either death or, or things that have happened that caused that to be a reality because the best structure to transport a child from birth through adulthood is within two loving biological um, parents. And a child is supposed to grow up learning about masculinity and femininity, and, and they get to see a more holistic picture of who God is. He's reflected an image as man and woman in different ways show what it means to nurture, to lead, to challenge, to encourage, to train, and discipline. This is his intention. is a foundation for family. He's seeing beyond just the moment and seeing all of creation, future generations. Then we look in Genesis 2, 18 and 24 and 25. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The first thing that's not good in creation is for man to be alone. And I can attest to that. 
uh, because I didn't really know how much of a mess I was until I got married. I was like, oh, you like take care of yourself and stuff. Like, that's interesting. I just like survive on the least amount of money possible. <laughs> like that, I, I just began to see there is a different way of doing it than just me. And this whole term, helper, it, it really in the Hebrew is kind of saying that it's a strength corresponding to him. That, that they are a complement to each other. They're completely opposite, yet exactly the same. It's like this crazy reality of what's happening. And so it's kind of like a striker and a goalie on a soccer team. Both have very important roles. And they're just as important to the team. Or it's like a point guard and a center. You need both to have a great team. And marriage is meant to be team. It's a team activity. Anytime Ashley and I ever have an issue or disagree or have an argument, we always try to come back to, hey, hold on. We're on the same team. Let's not fight each other. Let's be reminded that we are together in this. And so purpose two that we find, one is the foundation for family. Two is to reflect God's oneness. And so we see this whole thing where they become one flesh. The two become one. When you say Daniel, you can't help but think of Ashley. When you say Ashley, you can't help but think of Daniel because we're one. And we have come together, not just physically, but we've come together emotionally and spiritually, and we are becoming one more and more all the time. And so we, it says there's no sin. They're, they're naked and unashamed. There's nothing to hide. There is this freedom in marriage where you come together and you know that you have each other's back and love each other. Well, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three in one. They work together as one team. It's this amazing thing that kind of blows up our structural minds. And just like that, as we come together, we get to reflect the oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you today, if you are married, that there is a battle for your hearts. And the enemy, his favorite tactic is divide and conquer, right? And what he wants to do is he wants to move you towards isolation so that you're no longer reflecting God's oneness, but you instead feel like you're roommates in a house that don't know or love each other anymore. And instead, God calls us to fight for oneness, to have date nights, to pursue each other and know each other intimately in every way possible. And I want to challenge each of you to fight for oneness because otherwise you will drift towards isolation. And may we again come back and say, God, I need your help. I need you to help us fight for oneness. And this is the original design, a husband and a wife for life. So we can reflect to a culture and to our family who God is and what his plans are. This is how we set it up in the beginning. But this is before Satan comes in and begins to twist and change God's creation. You see, what the enemy loves to do is to come in and to put just enough deception to keep it believable, but make it destructive. And, and he wants to come in and separate families because he knows that it is the most basic building block of all of society. And if we lose the family, we lose the culture, and he knows that he's targeting the strongest foundation. Of all. So how do we spot a counterfeit? How do we know when the enemy's twisting something and changing it? 
Well, John MacArthur wrote about what federal agents do as they're trying to figure out what are counterfeit bills and what are real, authentic bills. And he said federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study the genuine bill until they master the look of the real thing. Then when they see bogus money, they recognize it. You see, the more that we know God's plan and we understand that God was looking at a broader vision, he was looking for the whole of creation and for future generations, we can begin to say, oh, I see why you set it up as you did, God. You know best. Well, what are the counterfeits of our culture today? Well, today we have a lot of counterfeits to God's original intention. We have living together in cohabitation before marriage, open marriages, affairs, gay marriage, divorce, porn, hookups, and the list could go on and on. And there's been other counterfeits of other times and cultures, like Asherah poles and shrine prostitutes and bestiality and pedophilia and polygamy. And and again, the list could go on. There's been all kinds of ways that other cultures have gone outside of the original design and they've experienced the pain of that. So how do we answer the counterfeits of our culture? That's what Collide is all about, is preparing you to have the conversation with our culture as, as they are going outside of God's original intention. Well, we look at John 8, and this is where Jesus interacted with someone that had gone outside of God's original intention. And, and this is the moment, and if you want to open it, it's John chapter 8. There's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And she is brought before Jesus and thrown at his feet and said, Teacher, shouldn't we stone her? You see, she's gone outside of your design. Let's show her who's boss. And they wanted to trap Jesus with this. Because they wanted to either make him forsake God's teaching or be a murderer and help assist in killing her. And so they, they wanted to trap him. Well, when they kept on questioning him, In verse 7, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. You see, they wanted to trap Jesus, but Jesus didn't go there. Instead, he said, hold up, hold up. Before we talk about her issues, what about you? How have you bought into the counterfeit? Because I don't know if you heard me earlier in my Sermon on the Mount, but I said, if you've ever lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So check this. Before you start trying to condemn somebody else, take a look in the mirror real quick. And the truth is, we as a church of old and in history have responded in a wrong way to people that are struggling with this reality of of sex, of sin, of struggle, of temptation, of lust. With all of this, we, we have come out strong for way too long and condemned people in the midst of that. And Jesus is going there. You have no place to condemn anyone. Actually, I'm the only one with authority to condemn. You don't. Instead, check your heart first 
realize that you've also bought into some counterfeits. And then I think we, we get to see next, though, what also is still key. Because our culture would say, see, Jesus said you shouldn't condemn anybody. And the only thing that's wrong is to judge somebody. Well, Jesus didn't stop there. He actually says, well, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But go now and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus said, I don't condemn you. I don't push you away. I actually would rather draw you close. No matter where you are, what you're struggling with, Jesus doesn't want to push you away. He says, come to me. I want to love you. I want to help you. But he also, he says, I will not condemn you, but I also do not condone your behavior. I also will not call your sin good because I love you too much. Jesus loves you exactly where you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. He wants to draw you in to know him and follow him because sin will always bring pain long term. And so he wants to call you out of that. And we as a culture in Christianity need to find out how do we not condemn, but also not condone behavior. Because I don't want to tell anybody that they're rejected. That's not the answer at all. But it also, I cannot say that their sin is good or else I'm saying the father is wrong. Well, how do we answer people in our time period as we collide? Well, I think I've had some interesting situations. And one thing I just want to remind you of from another uh, series that we did, arguments produce winners and losers, but conversations create relationships. And a key thing for us is to step into conversations, understand people, hear people out. I I have heard very few people that were drawn to Christ through a debate over morality. I've almost always heard it being because the love they experienced, the kindness of God that drew them to repentance. And so we need to step into these conversations. Well, one time I was doing beach ministry and somebody knew I was a part of this group. And so they walked up to me and they said, I'm gay. You think I'm going to hell, right? I'm like, oh, that, that was intense. All right. <laughs> so uh, I didn't really plan to have that conversation today. But I, I basically just said, well, what do you think? And they're like, what do you mean? So they, 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 think they expected me to come back and start some argument. And I was like, well, what do you think? Tell me your perspective. We entered into a conversation and I said, you know, right sexuality doesn't get us to heaven. Perfection does. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. And just the standard of no condemnation and just equal footing at the cross just helped us have an incredibly gospel-centered conversation. And, and that person was very open as I got to listen to them and, and know what they thought and understand. Well, one of the biggest collisions of our culture today is gay marriage. It, it's something that is so strongly talked about. And, and if you ever kind of speak against it, people are like, well, that's an insensitive, intolerant fool, Right? And you can't bring up this topic. Can't talk about it. Well, I believe we need to stand on God's truth, but love people wherever they're struggling. Does the Bible actually say it's wrong? Well, yeah, there's going to be some teachers that are going to try to condone it and twist scripture and say what they want to say. But I think if you look at Romans 1, 26 and 27, it's pretty clear. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So scripture 
doesn't condone it. And when you look back, God, if God was for it, he would have given an image somewhere within Scripture of marriage between a male and male or marriage between a female and female. But, but Scripture is very clear that he is really calling people to a male and female relationship in the beginning of creation and through the rest of the Bible. It's a theme that resonates. But I have people say, well, but they love each other. Who are you to tell people who they can love? And I just say, I'm not anybody to tell anybody who to love. But I do have a question. Have you ever been confused as to what love was? Did you ever have a point in your life that you thought that was the one? I know I did. I would have married a lot of people along my journey uh, if I would have followed what love was. And so, but feelings are not a standard to base our culture on. It cannot be the foundation because feelings are like a roller coaster. They're going to take us all over the place. And when God set this foundation in place, he said, I have a purpose for it. But I think we as Christians today need to spend less time talking about what we're against and way more time talking about what we're for. You know what I'm for? I'm for families. I'm for marriages. I'm for the best structure to take a child from birth to adulthood. I'm for the next generation. I'm for God's glory advancing through our generation and for a people to submit to his authority. I'm for people experiencing the love of God. Amen? You see, we are prone to embrace people based on our feelings. And we are not calling anybody ever to reject a person. But there are concepts that go outside of God's design and being for God means that we have to come against certain issues, but not people. You see, I don't care what our culture does when it comes to legalizing, whether it be drugs or marriage or other situations that go outside of God's design. Because God didn't promise us a government. He promised us a kingdom. And he said, my glory will reign. You see, Christianity didn't didn't begin in a government that supported it. They were a rebel uprising that said, no matter what you do to us, we will follow Jesus. They couldn't even, they couldn't even threaten them with death and cause them to turn away from their faith. And these people would say, no matter what, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm sorry. That's where my allegiance lies. It's not to my government. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get lost in politics today. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Um, but... But we look forward at marriage. And so we see the first two concepts. We see the foundation for family, reflecting God's oneness. And then we look forward in in the Bible and we see all kinds of messy marriages. We see a bunch that are kind of off. You're like, if if that's the example, I'm not sure. And, And so we see one that's probably the messiest of all. There's a prophet named Hosea. Hosea is called to go marry Gomer. Well, Gomer happens to be not only a really weird name, but also a, happens to be a prostitute. And I'm sure Hosea's like, hold up, like, uh, can I get a different calling, God? I'd rather not do this one. And he says, go marry a prostitute and love her. Hosea, he goes and marries her. She goes after other lovers again, and he still goes back and gets her, even to a point where he has to buy her back. And he is basically saying, I will always love you. So the final purpose behind marriage that we find, because sin has messed up our world, is to demonstrate God's love and forgiveness. It's to show the world what that looks like. 
Because in marriage, we get to reflect this concept of agape love unlike uh, any other um, section of society. And so within agape, we say, I will love you with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. The thing about it is it's hard in marriage often because we do life together. We get the good and the bad from each person. We get the successes and the failures. And we all have our own sin orientations that affect our marriage. But then what comes often for for many people is divorce. And divorce also goes outside of God's original design because the reason it's so hard is because it makes people doubt agape. It makes people wonder, is unconditional love possible? Because my family didn't do it, so I don't know that it's real. And, And so without that foundation of agape, unconditional love, it cracks for our, our, our children, our next generation. And there's a, a passage in Ephesians 5 that talks about husbands and wives and how their relationship is supposed to be. And I encourage all of you to read it as a response to this time on, on what our roles are in all of this to help it really work. But a key verse is at the beginning, at the top, it says, therefore submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what it's basically saying is this, If you try to do a 50-50 marriage, it will not work. If you say, I'll give 50%, you give 50%, and hey, we'll meet each other's needs, and it'll always going to work. I don't submit out of reverence for Ashley and how great she is, because there's times I would doubt that. And she has a lot more reason to doubt submitting to me at all times, because I'm great. Instead, I submit out of reverence for Christ, and she submits out of reverence for Christ, And our relationship's not a 50-50 relationship. It's a 100-100 that says, no matter what you do, I will always love you. Even if you're a vegetable and unable to do anything for me. And that is what we all long for. So the question is, in our culture, it's not really... Our question in our culture isn't, is it true or is it right? And has it stood the test of time? Our question is, does it work? We're very pragmatic, is what we talked about week one. So pragmatism, does marriage still work? What, what are the divorce statistics in our culture today? What, are, what does everybody talk about? What do we say is the divorce rate? Somebody tell me. 50%. All right, that's what, um, that's what is the perceived divorce rate. And what do the people say about the church? What's the divorce rate in the church? 50%. All right, so, so really, who cares? Uh, who knows? It's kind of like rolling the dice. It might work, might not. 50-50, right? You know what? These statistics are totally bogus. It's actually not even close to true. We never made it to 50% divorce rate in America. There's been an eight-year investigative study done by uh, Shanti Feldhahn. It's called The Good News About Marriage. Because she went to find the statistic, and it was really hard to find. She asked the U.S. Census Bureau, what is the divorce rate? And they're like, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know? That's kind of a big statistic. Well, she found that actually 50% was based on a projection. It never even got close to 50%. And, and actual, the actual divorce rate in America is 32%. And for first-time marriages, it's 32%. And even there's more hope than, than we even think for second marriages as well. But for first-time marriages, there's a 32% divorce rate. And this is even on the high end because it's hard to sort out widowing situations and all that stuff too. And so it's actually probably even lower than that. But we've often heard that those, you know, inside the church, it's the same thing. Well, let's see this. 37% of that 32 
are outside the church. Those that don't have the authority and teaching and leadership of God in their life. And good news for those of you church people that are here today. If you if you attend twice a month, at least, that kind of gets you in that regular attender category. Your statistics go down to 27% in the church. And not only that, statistics would show that if you do it God's way, and you actually get to the point where there are two virgins trusting God's design, entering into the marriage covenant together under the authority of God. It's really hard to sort it out statistically because there's not always honesty um, But uh, in this concept. But all, all we know for sure is that dr- they say it drastically decreases. Many would say it's less than 10%. Some studies would say it's less than 5%. So here's what I have really good news, church people. God's way works. And if we come back to him and come back to his design, we can experience all that he has for us. And that is what he wants for you. He wants you to experience life. God is not trying to hold out on you. He's saying, I know what's best for you. I created you with a plan and a purpose. Trust me. I want you to experience life. I'm for you. Well, there's one primary um, thing that can be the indicator of whether a divorce or a lasting marriage is going to happen. One primary building block to a marriage, and this is why this is so important, is hope. If, If a marriage has a sense of hope, they will hold on no matter what. And even if one spouse has hope, often they will continue to hold on. And, and in the sense of futility is often where divorce rises and grows and, and, it, and it gets even more out of control. And so if it's 50-50 in our culture, it's just like, well, it's just one of two. It's not really that big of a deal. But if we realize that we are reflecting the love of God and we are showing the world who God is, we can come back and say, I need you, Jesus. And here's what I know about this whole thing. We are talking about matters of the heart today. And I know there's a lot of different situations in the room. I know for all of us, we have been impacted with this. And every one of us have followed somehow into a counterfeit at some point in our journey. And I think we need to be the people of God coming back to get today and saying, God, I repent of the counterfeits that I have fallen in line with. I'm sorry, Father, for what I have done in following my feelings instead of your truth. And for those of you that have gone through divorce, I just want to say I'm sorry. I know that wasn't your intention. And I know when you stood on the altar, the last thing on your mind was that. And I know it's so hard for you as you think back to that reality. Here's what I know about my God, however. He's a redeemer and a restorer. And he can heal incredible stuff. And he can take wherever you are, however isolated you feel today in your marriage, and he can draw you back to oneness again to reflect his love and agape all over again to a culture that needs to see it. And if you are in a family or and you're really close with people that are struggling um, with homosexuality or really pushing for gay marriage or you're having to have those conversations regularly, I just want to encourage you more than anything, do not condemn anybody because you don't understand their struggle. I've gotten to walk through with several students 
their struggle with this stuff. And it's been so fun to see them embrace God's design and be set free from a lot of the struggles of feelings and emotions that are driving their lives. And what I want to encourage you to do is just enter into their story, listen and love more than anything. But be careful not to condone or call it good because it will result in pain long-term. And God wants everybody to experience life, the best life possible, which is in his presence. And we can hold on to hope, knowing that his hope is with us. And we can have hope that he will restore us and lead us and call us his own. And when we run out of love, he's going to fill us with love all over again because I run out of it. I run out of love so often because I'm a selfish man. And I instead have to come back and say, God, fill me with agape again for my spouse, for my kids, for the people around me, because I'm tired. I need your help, Father. So wherever you are today, I don't know what your story is right now. I don't know exactly where everybody is. I do know this. You can come back. Jesus wants to look in your eyes and says, neither do I condemn you. But I want to lead you and help you leave your life of sin to come to my plan and experience my love for for now, forever, in my blessing. So I just want to pray for you and then we're going to sing and we're going to be reminded that his love never fails and never gives up on us. Even when we run like Gomer after other lovers, he calls us back time and time again says, you're mine. Father, Thank you for loving us despite our struggles. God, this whole thing of our hearts and marriage and and relationships is so confusing and hard. And so often it's easy to get distracted and just want to follow what we want right now. But instead, God, I pray that you would give us the courage as a congregation to stand on your truth. To submit to your authority. To see your vision and to hold on to you regardless of whatever everyone else thinks of what we have to say. But ultimately, Father, we simply want to be filled up with your love that would draw everyone that we engage with into your presence and into a relationship with you. Because in you and in your presence is life everlasting. So, Father, help us to repent of anywhere that we're looking outside of your design. I pray against affairs. I pray against porn. I pray against the struggles that are happening in this room, not because it's a person that we're against at all, but because we're against sin. And Satan, you have no authority in this place. And Jesus, you reign supreme, and we will submit and we will follow your design as a culture. We love you, Jesus. We are part of your kingdom because you've called us and accepted us as worthless dirty sinners and called us your own and adopted us into your family. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.